Welcome, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the official podcast of the Wisdom Factory Literary Society. Here we are committed to the practical application of knowledge so that we may develop ourselves to our true potential. Along with individual improvement, we seek to unite knowledge with action for the betterment of mankind. In order to accomplish our task, we facilitate dialogue and debate through literature and media, but most importantly, through lively conversations amongst individuals like you who are brilliant, experienced, and who maintain the ability to exercise sound judgment. This episode is the first in a series that will seek to explore the art of speech making and the science of oratory. Together, Preston and Jordan attempt to construct the ideal orator. We hope that you find this episode entertaining and instructive. Stay tuned for more videos and please post your comments below. And if you can, subscribe. Thank you to wisdom, virtue, and victory. Enjoy. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is a podcast test for the Wisdom Factory Literary Society. And today I am with Preston Nieves, and we are executing an inquiry into the making of an orator. So basically, Preston, we, uh, we understand that there's a significance in the orator, the speaker, the person who goes before society and tells them you know, the state of the union or, tells them or gives them a new vision and sort of talks to the nation as a whole because a speech is really the only way that you can reach the whole nation. Uh, it's been done since ancient times, uh, and it's just a, a linchpin of government, of all governments. Uh, and it's something that not only helps you at the national level, but it can help you at any level, uh, professionally or you know, in, in class, you know, with your assignments. And it's just a really important thing to talk about because a, a lot of, you know, unless you're taking a rhetoric course, you know, you don't really get that education on how to be an orator. And there's a lot of good information out there. There's a lot of good information out there that will help you along your way. And one of the things that the Wisdom Factory does is we try to develop ourselves. And Preston, let's try to develop this skill of oratory real quick. So uh, just off the back, uh, who's your favorite speaker and why? Who do you, who do you look to when you Well, I've got to think about that one a little bit. Um, I would say, can I have two? Because it's you can have 12, Preston. Because okay. <laughs> I'm going to say I have two, and one... One's not going to be politically correct, and I will preface this by saying I like you know obviously I hate I hate the message of of the non politically correct one you know the one who um, you know and I'll talk about him second because I want to lead with something that's going to be familiar to a lot of people. So the first speaker that I really say that I would like um, is is Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. That he yep. was one of my favorites, and one of the reasons is because he just he had emotion, but he was able to do that without losing the logical aspect. That what happened, you know, he went up there, he made a lot of good metaphors, you know, he spoke in a manner, in a style that was easy to follow, you know, that conveyed that he really cared about the issue. You know, he was able to get in depth enough where you understood what he was saying, but at the same time, he didn't lose you, and he knew how to just, you know, speak just as long and just as in detail. Um, and that overall, like, it was, when you listen to an MLK speech, it's something, yeah. it's empowering, you know, that he makes you want to see change. Now, the second person that I would say I like, and once again, I'm gonna, I need to emphasize this because there's people who, who will get mad when I say this. I like the speaking style, not the message. Um, 
Adolf Hitler was a power, and, and the reason why I say, now, the, the thing is with Adolf Hitler is that the, you have to understand the effectiveness of this rhetoric because when you look at what he was able to do in getting people to follow him, you know, think about it like this. He had a message that was complete bullshit, and yet he was right. able to get entire, the entire German nation to follow him, almost. There were dissenters, but not many. Why is that? Well, because Hitler, he was somebody who, you know, when you listen to how powerful his speeches were, that when you, you know how he was able to appeal to such a wide range of emotions, he was able to get people fired up mm -hmm. and to, to care about a cause. They, you know, that that with that power and with that style that he had, you know, being able to kind of ignite a spark inside of people, that that those rhetorical strategies were extremely effective. And you know, it's and 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 that when you listen to that speaking style, right. there are things. It, 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 as much as we might not want to talk about this historical figure, yes. there are things yes. that can be learned from his speaking I style. Think, I think that that's exactly the point. Now, I don't want the listeners to be scared. Oh, he said Adolf Hitler, so you're triggered already. Now, I want you to pay attention. This is an intellectual debate, and what mm -hmm. Preston has, uh, has, has uh, noticed and discovered is an important part of, you know, of oratory, is that Hitler, whether you like him or not, he was effective. And I think why that is important is because what Preston is getting at is his ability to lead a nation forward, to have a vision and have the nation execute that vision. And he did that largely through his oratory and the way that he connected to the, to the, to the, to the German people and got them to sort of build this superpower nation. Now, obviously, they were a force for evil, but... What if you were Hitler for good? What if you yeah. were the same person who had the same repertoire, who had the same speaking style and the same power of speaking, but instead of doing evil and, and, and committing genocide, you wanted progress and peace and you wanted to explore the new bounds of human achievement. I yeah. think that's what I think that's what you're trying well, to good, say. A here. good thought experiment and that you could kind of use, like imagine, imagine if say, you know, obviously everybody's politician favorite politician is going to be different. But mm -hmm. two examples that I've heard that are pretty popular. Imagine if say Rand Paul or Bernie Sanders had their views, but the speaking style of Hitler. Right. How persuasive would that be? That would be something else, yeah. you know. And that that what it is is that I think that you know that there are definitely. You know, w when you're thinking about whatever it is that you stand for, because obviously one of the reasons why I, I named two politicians, one on the right and one on the left, is because I recognize that people have a very broad and diverse set of political priorities. You know, what the, the direction I want to see the country go might not be the same that you want to see the country go. Right. But regardless of what happens, but I think if you want to have an effective movement, you know, and if you want to make sure that that movement ultimately leads in the direction that's good, that your interests actually get achieved, that people actually support you, you know, that you, you don't hit a bunch of brick walls in, in opposition, you know, that, that the way to do that is that you have to communicate to people in a way that, you know, that the message reaches them mm -hmm. and that the message inspires them. Yeah, when you talk about Martin Luther King and, <laughs> and Hitler and what they did, there was actually something that's very similar to both of them. Uh, and that is, for Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, he's, he was the king at it, you know, what he did. Oh, yeah. When he spoke and he, and he poured his heart out to these people, the reception that he get, they weren't clapping. They were screaming. They were crying. They were jumping up in the air, you know, mm -hmm. having their, their hands in the air. You know, like it just it affected people so powerfully that they wanted to then prove to Dr. King that they, that they didn't just take that speech in vain, that they understood his call to action and they went forth and they did it. And I think yeah. that that's what Hitler did best in Germany is he got people to make little sacrifices for themselves, whether it was rationing or whether it was, you know, sharing property 
or, 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 what ha or hiring, or he got business people to commit to not simply living for the profit motive and for greed, but to sort of participate in building the German nation, even if they had to sacrifice their own pockets. And so the, the big thing that you see, the underlying trend there, is this call to action and the duty and getting people to do something. And that is why oratory is important. So now I just want to go ahead, now that we sort of have a baseline of, of why this should be explored, let's go ahead and, and, and explore and do this little mental exercise that we've thought up that we think is the best way to sort of help your average student, your average listener, whoever it might be you know, hearing this right now, to sort of incorporate these things into their life and become a more effective speaker. And that is, what me and Preston are going to try to do is construct an orator. So it's like if you had a game and you were able to create your own character and you had all their attributes, whether it would be you know, intellect, whether it would be wisdom, or whether it would be uh, compassion, or whether it would be you know, uh, their, their beauty, you know, or, or you know, how tall they are, or how do they look, their presence, their energy, their charisma. How would you construct the perfect orator? And I think the first question that we have to ask ourselves, Preston, is are orators born or are they made? Are there some people who are just have a natural ability to be able to captivate people with their words? Or is this something that you could sort of uh, develop? But if you don't have, like if you have a lisp, or if you just don't have a powerful voice, or if you just don't have those hawk eyes, you know, there are a lot of things that you're born with. People in the NBA, they're born tall, they're born good, they're, they're born, um, you know, like with a capability to be athletic. You know, there's a lot of areas where you have to have a certain level of natural gift. So is that true or do you see that this is more something that anybody can develop? Well, I, I would definitely say that, well, first of all, I'm going to kind of go, uh, go from simple to complicated because I, I, I think that there is definitely a more complex answer uh, uh, to this that's a little bit more definitive and more conclusive. But to put it simply, I would say, that, uh, first of all, that it is a little bit of both. And what I'm going to get into is I think the degree of which is more important. It is a little bit of both. Now, obviously, there are some people who just innately seem to have a talent you know, for speaking. Like, you know, there's a lot of people I've met who are like that. Some people have said that about me because, like, from a very early age, I love to talk and I, you know, would, would get people fired up with some of the stuff I've said. So I do definitely think that there is a component. But when you look at some of these rhetorical strategies that you have in front of us, things like invention, arrangement, style, memory, that there are definitely are some techniques that, whether you're a good or bad speaker to start with, you can use to improve yourself, to be mm -hmm. a little bit more persuasive. And, and right. I, 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 I have some firsthand experience with that. Like in, when I was uh, competing in um, congressional debate in high school, that I went from mediocre to good because I adopted a new structure for my speeches, and it was something that helped me with the judges in those rounds and stuff like that. Uh, but now to get into a little bit more deeper analysis, like I think that, you know, now we've sort of dissolved this notion of it being an absolute question. I think there's definitely degrees because, right. you know, I definitely think that people are born more so than made. Obviously, they're both factors, but I think that, you know, when you have, you know, peep, a lot of times when you have a good speaker is that their brain is wired in such a way that these strategies come easily to them, you know? Either they just do it naturally, or they can learn them very, very easily. Whereas not a lot of people necessarily are like that. And that, you know, what, what it is, it, I, I think that, that gr great speakers are definitely born. Because, you know, similar to how people have different talents, like, you know, how mm -hmm. Einstein, he was born with these talents at math and science. Right. You know, how, uh, you know, you know, how, how Socrates and Plato were, were born with great intelligence. Like, you know, how you have 
you know, how basketball players, people in right. the NBA, you know, they're born tall. Oh. The people have certain talents, and I think that speaking is just one of those talents that certain people have. And while anybody can become a better speaker than they were before, you know, when we're talking about truly great speakers, it's almost universally people who are talented at speaking, people who are sort of born for it, and that they might have used certain educational aspects to take their speaking to the next level uh, on on that point i think i think the best formula <laughs> for this to, to note is that we're not saying that anybody can't become a good speaker we're just saying that good speakers uh that po some people are born good speakers but if you incorporated these these elements or this little instruction that you know me and Preston are going to explore a good speaker who does these practices can become a great speaker Versus a good speaker who doesn't do these will just become a good speaker, and a bad speaker who incorporates these styles can become a good speaker. Exactly. So you can sort of level up from wherever you are. You, you, you can improve. It's just your base level for improvement yeah. and, and might be sort of fixed. But yeah. even if that's the case, there are, there are instances where, whether through sheer will or through sheer determination, that you can overcome even the most seamlessly unlimited obstacles. Now, there was a case where the, the, the best Greek <coughs> orator of ancient Greece was Demosthenes, okay? Now he was the person that he would, he saw that, uh, that King Philip of Macedon was coming to, 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 to give battle to them. He saw King Macedon conquering, you know, Thebes and areas around Greece, and he would, and the, and the Greek people didn't want to do nothing. They didn't want to fight, they were scared. So he was the one who sort of got them to organize and then put up infantry and, and build a navy and got them to defend their country. Now a lot of people don't know that Demosthenes was born with a speech impediment. He was born with a limited range of skills that we would call that are natural skills, but he was so determined that he took upon himself like a, a one year where he, he went to the woods, he went to a cave, right? He went to a cave, he wanted to sort of work on becoming a better orator, and he didn't do anything else. He was in this cave, and every day he would try to practice speaking, and, he would, and because he had a speech impediment, he put rocks in his mouth. So he tries to train his, 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 his style of speaking. And you can do the same thing by putting a pen in your, in your, in your mouth. You put a pen, you, you talk like this a little bit. And you do that, and, and so there are ways to, to, to overcome even natural obstacles, like Demosthenes did when he did this. And because he's, he spent so much intensive training on becoming a better orator, he was sort of, he, he was able to even overcome orators with natural gift and who had worked at it just through sheer, because he just wasn't gonna let this get him down and that he wanted to make sure that he was the best. Now, another thing that I can say is if you do have something like where you just simply can't speak or if there's something like that, then there are alternatives you, you can still write. And I think a lot of the things that apply to the order applies to the writer. Yes. So I, I would advise you to explore that area. But the majority of people that we're talking about, they have a good baseline. You know, they're able to speak. They're coherent. They, they you know, they, they have, you know, the, the intellect to incorporate many of these styles and become great in their craft of or, or of speaking. Well, and one thing I'll kind of tack onto that is, that, and, that, and that's why, really, you know, my initial answer was was as a combination of both. Because while right. I do agree, uh, while I do agree that it's it's more you know, natural talent than, than you know, the, the technique that obviously they both feed into one another and that one can overcome the other mm -hmm. if it's to a sufficient degree, you know, that you could have somebody who never ever practices speaking or thinks about any of these techniques who's good if they're just naturally an amazing speaker, whereas, you know, with the example you just gave, it can also be the opposite, that, you know, that, that one in a massive degree 
can compensate for the other. And that, you know, and that's similar how, to how a lot of natural talent can overcome someone not paying attention to rhetorical, or rhetorical techniques, that somebody who practices rhetorical techniques endlessly can definitely overcome certain natural limitations. And that I, th I think that you know, it, it's, it's important to not just look at this as only from a perspective of the extremes. That obviously in both natural talent and in how hard you work at it, that there's a range of things. And that you know that that uh, that y anybody can improve or and be a better speaker than they were before, and that you know when you work really hard at it, or maybe if, if your natural difficulties were only slight, or you know you spend a lot of time when you're practicing, you know that kind of stuff. There are definitely ways around it. You know I think that when we're talking about characteristics and which of the two approaches or you know is, is more effective in developing a great speaker, it really has to do I think you know with how easy it is to overcome, where people start, you know how likely are you to yeah, success. How much do you need to work to get to that? Because right. you know, somebody who's a naturally great speaker could probably get to that point easily. Whereas when you start with a speech impediment, it takes lots of practice to become someone like that. All right, Preston. So I think that we've uh, sort of uh, laid that down. I think we, we we solved that problem of whether this is you know innate or whether someone can can improve. And I would mm -hmm. urge anybody who's listening to this to try to seek to improve. <coughs> to try to improve, regardless of what we say. The goal is to always try to improve yourself. Mm -hmm. So with that note, Preston, we have here you know, the five canons of rhetoric, uh, and we don't have to stick to this, but when we're building our orator, the, one of the main things that he has to be able to do is he has to be able to do the most easy step, which is, well, not the easy step, but the most obvious step, which is, what do I say? What do I say? How do I come up with the words? That process is called invention, and that is like before a Supreme Court justice you know, gives his speech, he has to be able to take in all the arguments and he has to bring it together and then and, and, you know, filter that through his own uh, reasoning and then you know, uh, sort of come up with something that's, you know, um, that sort of is a result of that process. And, and so what process do you go through when you invent? For me, I, you know, there's people who they can just do it right there and they just type, you know, like, like they just write something or they, or they say something and they edit it while they're speaking. And there's also people who prepare statements, who just have bullet points in their head that they want to that they want to say, and then they just go through uh, through the structure and do it that way. But let's just say you're giving a speech. Let's say you you have a, a great speech to give. How are you going to invent that speech? What is the process you're going to use to make sure that you have the right words? Well, there's kind of a two-part process that I go through that kind of incorporates the, both of the things that you talked about, preparing things beforehand. But also, how you mentioned how a lot of people can just come up with stuff on the fly. Mm -hmm. I think both of those are important. And what the most effective orators a lot of times do, and what I always follow when I'm trying to pre prepare a speech, is a combination of both. But I think the starting point, kind of going first, you know, with the prepared approach, the starting point of any speech is you need to have an argument. That you, there has to be a cause or a philosophy or an ideology or something. You know, it can be broad or specific. A goal that you want to achieve. You know, that there sort of has to be an objective for the speech, right. and you have to have in your head the argument behind it. Now, the reason why I talk about how it's also important to adapt, and the reason why I say that both parts of those are equally valid, and I use half and half when I'm developing speeches, is because when you're in front of an audience, to communicate effectively, you need to be able to read that audience. There have been times where I've been speaking to a group of people how, who, who the way they reacted to certain rhetoric, the you know the group of people that they you know the groups that they came from might have been a little bit different than I expected. 
And that when that happens, you can't just go off the scripted speech. And you have to have that ability, whether it's born or learned, to just come up with stuff on the fly right. um, in order to be able to satisfy different interests or to kind of move along with the moods of the crowd, you know, because a lot of speaking is about emotion and that, you know, in order to have a, a argument that ties into that well, you have to be able to kind of partner those two things together and that you need to read the crowd. But reading the crowd and understanding how people feel, right, right. observing how different rhetorical strategies are reacted to, that's something that's done in the moment. Those things are, 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 are well, true, and valid, Preston, and I think that anybody has to be able to you know, have that two com those two components. But what I want to really get at is not the sort of while you're speaking and how you handle the speed bumps of speaking, <coughs> of being in an actual real-time environment, of where things are changing and there's a lot of you know noise, uh, you know of all kinds that you have to deal with. But I guess I should have been a little bit more specific here. Um, when I say invention, I mean coming up. And, and you did touch on this by having an objective and having a mission and having a reason and having an argument. But I guess what, what I'm what I'm trying to get at is here not the actual speech, but writing the speech. So this is like pre-speaking, mm -hmm. like because when you're speaking, that's the actual you know that's you're actually doing the speaking. But I mean like how you write the speech, you know, like like uh, like what process do you have when you're actually writing the speech? This actually doesn't even fall under speaking, but obviously you're gonna have to speak what you're writing. Yeah. So it's an important step that you can't be neglected. Yeah. And so is there any anything that that you noticed that helps that process of actually writing the speech? Well, one thing that definitely helps for me is, you know, kind of going oh, going off what I had said towards the beginning. You know, first of all, that when you know you want to make sure you have strong arguments. You want to kind of you want to get your evidence together. You want to get together what it is that you want to say. You know, like I said, what your objective is. Another thing that helps is you definitely want to try to anticipate things. Like you want to think about counter arguments. Um, and that after you do your research and you have your argument together, you really have to think about, you know, how am I going to say this in a way that's going to be well received and that people aren't just gonna immediately dismiss that. And that thinking about the other side, that can help you strengthen your argument sometimes. When you're trying to develop what your message is gonna be, you really have to make sure that it's airtight. You really have to make sure that what you're saying makes sense and that what you're saying is not just relying on false assumptions. Um, and that you know when you're when you're trying to put these ideas together, you know, the first step is making sure that you have something that's sound. You know, that it has to be, you know, the, 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 the analogy that I would use is like, you know, building the foundation. Like the foundation of your speech is what you're saying. Nothing else matters if you don't have anything to say or if you don't know what you're saying. You have to know what you're saying first. And that that step requires, you know, getting together arguments that make sense, that are strong, you know, that you know you can present, that are, are relevant to the topic that you have chosen to speak about, etc. Okay, yeah, uh, I would say that, you know, a couple of important things here are when you're giving a speech, you have to know what it's for. So, you know, most speeches are to persuade, you know, to, to sort of advocate <laughs> for a course of action, while others are just simply informal. And for both of those, you still need to do the same thing, which you sort of touched on, uh, which I just want to sort of highlight a little bit, is, is information. So you never want to go into a speaking situation where you haven't done your homework and actually researched <laughs> the topic that you're, you're speaking on or sort of done the intensive you know, work that it takes to actually acquire the knowledge to sort of to know exactly what you're talking about and to, to sound confident and have that conviction that you know this is true, you have the evidence to back it up, you've done all of your homework, you know, you, you, you've, just, you've, you've taken in all the information and you processed it, and you're now you're given it in either an argumentative form or an informative form. And the second thing, that once you have that information that you need to do is be cognizant of your audience, and that is 
you know, you, if you if your audience is college educated, or if they're you know if they're you know they're students, or if they're old people, or if they're of a certain demographic background, then you want to make sure that you're catering your speech to them in any way that you can. Like you know, like if you're in uh, Idaho State University, you know, you want to say you want to give a reference to something that has to do with Idaho State. You know, yeah. that sort of those little tricks and tips in your invention uh, can help. You know sort of yeah. give you the ear of that reader. And also when you're inventing, you always want to have like a, a toolbox of things, you know, like quotes, you know, <coughs> quotes that you want to throw in there or stories that you might want to put in there uh, to sort of highlight your point or just general lessons, you know, general maxims that are true in any, in any case uh, and sort of have a toolbox that you can put in there in your invention. Now, obviously there's so many things that go into this invention process, but it's, this is the most creative part to me of the whole thing. And it's like, you're creating from nothing basically. To me, it's the most interesting part, you know, uh, and that invention is, is so special. But I think if you follow these little things that me and Preston, you know, uh, highlighted, and then you also, you know, just come up with some things in your own, you know, uh, invention, I mean, we could talk about, you know, forever. Is this and and one, one just last thing I was going to say, and it, this kind of just came to mind. One other thing I think is mm -hmm. very important, because you mentioned the creative aspect. I think right. that's, the, that's really important. You have to be unique. That no matter how well you apply some of these other things we're about to talk about, yeah. people are less likely to be interested in something they've heard before. You know, if you sound just like everyone else, even if you present it better than anyone did, people are not going to want to listen to you. When you're in this invention stage, when you're thinking about what you want to say, it's important. You got to think about what do I have to offer that's new, you know. And it could be if it's informative, it could be some new facts that you've discovered. If it's persuasive, it could be a new perspective or a new philosophy. It could even be a combination of both, you know, because you might have a speech that has elements of both. But regardless, you know, you really want to get that creativity going because it helps you be unique. That uniqueness right. is very important. People like to hear things that are new. People like to hear something, you know, that they haven't heard before, and that you, as a speaker, want to make sure that you're standing out and that you're bringing something to the table that other speakers simply cannot. When it comes to your ideas, and I think a lot of people hear that <coughs> and they, and they get a little bit, you know, troubled and concerned. That, oh, I'm not creative. Or, oh, how can I be unique? You know, because I just want to, you know, be like somebody else. Or they did it. Why can't I just do it like them? <coughs> but I think that a lot of people need to realize that they have the ability to be unique because everyone is unique. Yeah. Every person has their own experiences. Everyone has their own uh, you know, understanding of the world. And, and that is what you should tap into when Preston says being you know, unique and sort of having your own style is <coughs> that you should tap into your sort of uniqueness as a person. And one way that you can do that is uh, incorporate your emotions into your, into your speech. Now, you don't want to do this to a fault. There's obviously a balance <coughs> you have to strike here. But one thing that I hear, that, 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 that how they generally put it, is speaking from the heart. So when yeah. you speak from the heart, when you tap into that heart, how do you feel about this issue? Not only in a, in, <coughs> at an intellectual aspect, but from the heart. How does this issue affect you? And the best speakers that I see, they speak from the heart. They, don't, they, they, they construct their arguments from the heart. It isn't just you know, syllogisms and logic the whole time. There's a, there's a heart component. So I'm glad that you brought that up so we can incorporate that. But I would like to move on to um, sort of the next important thing that I think uh, we're going to is, uh, is <coughs> let's go for arrangement here. So mm -hmm. arrangement. Now, obviously, you want to have your, your attention getter. You want to have something that sort of gets the audience, you know, like a joke or, you know, or a quote or something that just reels the audience in. It's not too serious. You don't want to just go, go <coughs> in and say, 
diplomatic structure of United States and the United Nations, you know, you, you, you kind of want to give a brief overview or something like that. And then you got to have, you know, your bodies uh, and your, your thesis. Uh, you want to have your, you know, just your, your different aspects of structure. And I think, Preston, you could knock this one out of the park here with your experience in the LBJ Debate Society. Mm -hmm, yeah. uh, and sort of talk about what is a good structure to follow when you're giving a speech. So the first thing that I will say kind of going off, and I'm not going to go back to invention. I just think there's something that we said that's applicable to okay. it. That I think that a lot of times how you arrange something is going to depend on your audience a lot and the type of speech that you're giving. Because I think that, you know, when you're talking about the, you know, the how you organize the speech, you know, what order you present your ideas in, you know, is it structured or is it spontaneous or somewhere in between? A lot of times it's going to depend on what specific situation. So, for example, if you're giving sort of an informal speech where, you know, you're with friends and then you start talking about politics and then you get fired up and then, you, you know, you go up there and, and, you, and then you have this message, you can be a little bit looser, that you can be kind of you know, all over the place because if it's in an informal setting and that's what people are expecting and that's the style of communication that's been used, that's the style of communication that's going to appeal to that audience and you can do that. Whereas when you get to more of a formal setting, you know, and this kind of where the LGBT debate society stuff comes in, mm -hmm. that's when you want to have speeches that are a lot more structured right. and, and that's when you want to make sure that how you order things is more clear. Mm -hmm. um, so like what we'll do in extent, for example, that we have an intro, so we have an attention getting device, then we have a link, you know, we have something that we say like why that's relevant to the topic, we explain some background information, we talk about why it's significant, then we state the question, because in extent it's a topic where you give a speech about over a question, then you answer it, and then you give an outline. And that, this is something that's really important, you know, in these type of very formal and structured speeches, that you want to give sort of a roadmap in some way of what you're going to talk about. And then in extent, you know, we continue with three solid points and then we end up concluding. Now, obviously that's only one structure that can be used, but a lot of the same wisdom can be applied right. to other areas. And that how you organize it, you know, can kind of depend on the topic. So, you know, you always want to have, like, want something, some things are universal. Like, you always want to have an attention-getting device. But, like, if it's, if it's a very, if it's sort of a logical speech, kind of like how extemp is, or if you're in a debate round or something, you know, you want to maybe go point by point. Whereas if it's more of giving a speech in front of a crowd, like you know, for political reasons, maybe you want to incorporate more emotion in there, have a narrative to it, you know, tie in a story um, with that speech, and that you know, arranging it is something that you know how you arrange the speech really is going to be dependent on your audience. But once you do it, you have to make sure that you're consistent, that you want to stick to the style. You know, whether you're doing the informal speech that I talked about, where you're all over the place, whether mm -hmm. you're doing a formal argumentative speech like extent, or whether you're getting more into the emotional aspect, giving kind of a political speech, you want to make sure that you're consistent and that you follow that. You know, that way you're able to stay with the audience because ultimately the way we, the reason why we have these arrangement choices in the first place is because we want to make sure that we're communicating to our audience effectively. I think that when you when you want to talk <coughs> about arrangement, it's important that you sort of have a set idea in your head. Uh, now, regardless if it's the structure that we're talking about or a structure that you've made up, but it's just important <coughs> to stick to that arrangement. You know, th that's just the important thing. It's just to have your speech arranged in some kind of way. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's any perfect way to do it. You know, like you said, depending on the type of speech in the audience, then that's what you want to go for. But one of the one of some of the arrangements that I see that are more interesting. And what a lot of speakers, uh, you know, a lot of statesmen do is like they sort of they do build up speeches to where they're building up 
to a certain point, you know, where, where, where the emotions just seem to sort of rise and rise and rise and rise, and then they hit you with, with their claim or their main point, and then, then once they have you, then they just they sort of move into to arguments. And now, one of the ways that you can do that is to, you, it, it, the way you arrange something is to have the main point, your main argument, and then develop that with, you know, sort of three other arguments. Um, like you can have uh, an argument of, of, a, of why, like if you're doing a speech on, let's say, um, whether you should raise the minimum wage or something. Now, I'm not necessarily for it or against it. I'm just using it as an example. But I think that you could then arrange your arguments in a way that you can use an example in the real world. You can use an example of something that another country does. Uh, you can use an, a, an argument about, you know, uh, about something that we've done in the past that hasn't worked. Or you can do an, an argument, uh, you can do sort of a straw man argument, you know, if, if, that's, if that's your thing, you know, like there's other arguments that you can make there. But I think that like when you arrange something, you obviously want to have your main header and then you want to have things that follow that header, you know, your sort of your, your different arguments and then your conclusion and mm -hmm. where you get back to that, to that header. It's um, that, that really, that reminds me of something I forgot to mention that, you know, because you, you touched on it a little bit when you talked about with your header and your main argument. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think you can take it a little bit further in some cases, uh, especially if you have like a metaphor to the speech. Mm -hmm. It's good to have something you can go back to, especially when you're dealing with audiences like the general public. Like if you're dealing with a bunch of professors, you might want to take a more argumentative approach. But if you are a politician up there on a stage giving a speech, it's good. People like repetition. When people hear something over and over, when you have a narrative that you can keep going back to, it's good. And a perfect example of this is one, one time, you know, uh, Bill Clinton. Um, you know, Bill, Bill Clinton, he's, he's known as, you know, definitely one of the better speakers that we've had. You know, and, and a lot of his speeches right. were very persuasive. And one thing I remember um, was there was a speech he gave, we're going to build a bridge mm -hmm. to the 21st century. Because this was, you know, nearing the turn of the millennium, and that was something he was using as a rhetorical device. And in the speech, he talked about all sorts of these different points. He talked about economics. He talked about social issues, etc. But every time he concluded, he said, "We're going to build a bridge right, to the 21st yeah. century," and that people can visualize that. They can think about that. There's a 21st century over over there, you know. And we, if we build this bridge, we can get there. If we build this bridge. We can get there, and it's going to be good. You know that things are going to be better than they were before, and we can reach it without any problems. You know, but if he had just said that once, he could have lost people. But no, he made it a recurring theme throughout the speech. Every time he talked about something that was important, every time he concluded a major point, we are going to build a bridge to the 21st century. Right, and I mean, obviously, the the, the point of having arrangement is to give your speech the, the the maximum impact that it can have, so that what you said either gets whether it's if it's call for action, it sort of gets uh, it gets done that people want to do it, or whether it's an informative topic that the people understand what you're talking about. So that's the importance of uh, arrangement. And if you have a good arrangement, like Preston said, you can incorporate that that skill. It worked very good for Bill Clinton. That sort of type of arrangement. But the next thing that we want to get into, and I know we're pressed for time. How much more time do we have here? 12 minutes? Um, we, 13 minutes? We have about like, yeah, like 11 minutes. About actually. 11 minutes left? Okay. And so I want to get into the most fun part <laughs> of, of, of talking, and that is delivery. So that is actually how you speak. Your tone inflections, whether you're speaking loud or you're speaking soft, very soft. That's the way that you just you want to do it. And I think, I think a lot of these things 
they sort of affect the listener in so many different ways. You know, you can deliver with your hand gestures, you can make these big, loud movements, <coughs> or you can pound the table if you're mm -hmm. trying to make a powerful statement. I mean, the speech in itself isn't just the words. <laughs> like, the majority of a speech, or a good portion of the speech, is how you deliver that speech, whether you look confident, whether you're, you're, you're confident, or whether you're doing the oohs and ums and ahs. You know, uh, delivery is just such a huge, important speech. Uh, part of speaking, I mean, like some people, they don't even have to be saying anything necessarily intelligent or convincing. If the way that they speak is just sort of, it's just a pleasure to listen to them, then you sort of account them as a great speaker, even if their substance of speaking isn't really uh, what we would see as, you know, as, as good or, yeah. or, or, or well, merit. I think, I think my example of Hitler was a perfect example of that, that he, he was somebody, you know, who he was able to take this racist idea and you know, I'm going to use a metaphor here. You could say, you know, it was, it was shit, right? Mm -hmm. But he was able to convince people that this was the greatest shit ever, that this shit right. was amazing, that this shit's the best, that nobody has right. ever had better shit than this shit, and that this shit will conquer the world. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And yeah. that's basically what he was able to do, you know? And that, well, and I know what you mean, but you know, kind of going back to the types of speeches we want to have, you know, fighting for narratives that are that are good and that are positive. Right. Like I think style. The first thing, there's a couple things that come to mind for me when it comes to this aspect. The first thing is, well, obviously the audience, but but with that, it's it's kind of like, read. You know, you got to read the audience. That's kind of an in the, in the moment thing. When you're thinking about what kind of style you want to use, sort of ahead of time. The first thing is important. You need to think about the setting. You know, if you're speaking at a funeral, you know, it's going to be somber. Whereas if you're speaking at a political rally. You know, especially if it's a big issue, you want to be out there. You want to, you know, be, you know, fired up. You want to be powerful. But the other thing that's important, I think, is ver being able to have variation mm -hmm. in style. Right. Because power is great. You know, being somber is great. Humor is great. You know, being right. being proud. You know, talking about the achievements of uh, that you've had. You know, are great. You know, uh, but the thing is that any one of those things, if by themselves, especially over the duration of a very long speech gets old, you know, if you just got one guy, like with power, you got one guy up there, he's just shouting at the top yeah. of his oh, lungs yeah, for 30 minutes, can't stand you can't guys. stand it, whereas, you know, if you got somebody and they just, you know, like they start with a sad topic, and then they're talking about happy things, and they still sound like this, that's not funny either, but if you have that variation, get that guy out of here, yeah, <laughs> but if you have that variation, you, you have a guy who's able to, to start off nostalgically, and then, Get you know maybe get sad and talk about right. you know how we've lost that, but then get fired up and talk about how we don't have to go back to the past that the future can be better that we can forge our way ahead you know and get that power going and then maybe calm things down a little bit and talk about you know things in a more logical and calm setting you know maybe drop a joke here and there you know mm -hmm. talk you know maybe make something that's funny uh, you know that having that variation is important and that it's a good way to enhance the effectiveness of the delivery of your message because different parts of your message are going to have different styles that are better suited you know for, right. for each one that you know you might want to emphasize things that are very very important points whereas you might want to calm down a little bit when you're transitioning or you might want to seem sort of you know humorous or sarcastic when you're talking about what say maybe political opposition is saying you know that there's different things that you want to incorporate um, and you want to reflect the different aspects of your message by varying your style I think that's an important uh, sort of when you <coughs> talk about you know the sort of tone that you're speaking your highs and lows and what to me what it brings to mind is is like music you know it's like if you can speak in a way that has rhythm 
uh, really, the best speakers that I know, they do it. They don't talk in these long sentences, uh, you know, these fragments where everything just doesn't seem to fit. They sort of have this perfect cadence. It's like you can almost time them, mm-hmm. you know, like that, like a measurement, and you know what they're saying. And when they do that, like when they use long sentences uh, and then short sentences, it just sort of accents each other, and they just find that perfect rhythm and that perfect ba- that balance that sort of allows them to empower their message. Now, you know, uh, to me, I, I think delivery is, is, is probably the most important because what's a good speech if you can't deliver it? You know, it's the most yeah. impactful part. And, 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 uh, and delivery, whether your speech is good, is determined upon the delivery because that's, that sort of makes the listener, you know, understand it or, or you know, or disregard it. Uh, and I think that, you know, when you're talking about delivery, the thing that you want to do is accent almost every single word that you're saying sort of have in your mind an idea of like if you're going to talk about destruction you want to emphasize the word destruction or if you want to talk about the Lord and all of his might you want to sort of focus on that word those sort of things are powerful or you can do it the opposite way like if you want to highlight the troubles and the tribulations and the negative circumstances that always seem to follow the weak you can do it that way. So you always have a word or, this, or the words, you know, it could be basically every word in your sentence, but you want to make sure that if it's something that is central to that sentence or central to that idea, that you sort of emphasize that word uh, to sort of get the best effect. Yeah. You don't just sort of neglect your words because, you know, be nice to your words, people. That's all I'm trying to say. Well, That's and all and I'm trying you to think, say. And you think about, like, you know, and, and I'm going to, one example I'm going to kind of use is, like, if you're talking about, Maybe a group that's oppressed and how you want to fight for their rights, for example. Um, when you're going, I'll kind of give an example. Like you think about, and I'm not, I'm not saying I agree or disagree because obviously, you know, we're not trying to get partisan. But like if I'm up there and I'm advocating for immigrants' rights, you know, like think about this. I could say, for too long, our immigrant population has been oppressed. Right. Our government has abused its power against them. And he speaks some more, and I said, but today. Today we rise up, you know, like that you, right. you have those different inflections that, you know, you're, you're kind of going down, you, you kind of feel downtrodden when you're talking about the oppression, but then when you're at that no more part, they're like, no, this ends now. We will stand up to the government and we will fight for the liberties of this population. We will ensure that they are equally protected. You see that then you can have more of an upbeat narrative. You know, you want to be sad and kind of downtrodden when you're talking about the problem, but you want to be fired up and happy when you're talking about how you're going to fix it and why the future is going to be better than the past was. Now, one of the things that seems to cut across all of these steps, Preston, is, is, is emotion. And really, that's a huge part of the human experience. We're all emotional. We're, you know, if we hear, um, if we hear something in, in, a, in a minor, you know, pentatonic, it's going to make us feel sad. Versus mm-hmm. if we hear some upbeat, you know, some rock and roll music, we're going to feel energetic. It's just natural. We're susceptible to that to a fault, even, I would say. But what are some of the emotions that a good speaker wants to sort of extract from their listener? <laughs> what are some of the things that, like, that a Hitler or a Martin Luther King, that they utilize, that they directed their words to this, to get this specific response out of their people? And if I can just give it a, a first crack at it, I would say the number one thing that you want to do, especially for a statesman, or even if you're trying to speak in front of a judge or something, or, or, or flatter somebody, or get people to sort of become on your side, is you want to 
speak to their sense of pride. Yeah. I think that pride is, a, is, a, is, a, is an emotion that, you know, it's, it's, it's very strong. And I think that when you're going for emo emotions, you're going for strong emotions, whether they're good or bad, you know, you want to get a good mix in there, but strong yeah. emotions to me seem to be, seem to be the best uh, over, yeah. or over, you know, even complex emotions too. But so getting someone proud, whether that's, if you're speaking to Americans and you're obviously going to talk about that time that our soldiers um, faced innumerable odds when they uh, invaded the island of Iwo Jima and that island was fortified for three years and we didn't think that we were going to take it and then finally there's that image of the four uh, US Marines lifting that flag on that mountain I mean those sort of images <laughs> sort of appeal to your pride and yeah you, and, and, and they're strong me, it, whenever they're, every time I see that picture it hits me yeah. when I see that picture it makes me proud to be an American it makes you me know? proud to be an like American you see that and you're like like damn it our country did this we're you know, great. That we were able to overcome such huge obstacles that we were able to fight and win when the odds were against us so basically if you can with your words do that same thing create that image that is equal to the Iwo Jima picture but you're doing it not in a photograph you're doing it in words then you can get that sort of response out of people uh, you know to sort of help you along your way and help you achieve the mission of your speech also I think something that is needs to be used but needs you need to be careful in how you use it is anger because yes. there is such thing as rightful <laughs> indignation Jesus himself the man who never committed any never committed any sin had uh, there's a scene where in the bible where he goes to uh, one of the the big synagogues in it Jerusalem was, yeah, the, the temple the, 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 in that they the, were, what was happening the temple where where you know the great fathers had set up and then in there they have a market so they're changing monies and this temple of god became a place where they made money and so what did jesus saw that he just he was angry and he lifted up the tables and he threw the coins everywhere and all the poor people came in and got all the money but the point i'm trying to make is that anger right uh, what is it right righteous indignation is something that's important so if there's uh if you're speaking to somebody and they're obviously clearly in the wrong like if you're talking if you're a, a counsel and you're talking about someone who's murdered somebody it's okay to sort of say you're going this person has taken away the livelihood the 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 companion of my defendant uh, or you know of my what do you call it, of my client that person <laughs> shouldn't be allowed in society are you going to let that person be available so that he might kill your companion and just build up anger and resentment towards exactly. that person uh, I think in, in, in politics, it's, it's a lot of ways because there are a lot of evil politicians. Yeah. And if you're speaking, it's okay to sort of invoke a sense of hatred. And it, it kind of goes back that. to the topic a little because I think that anger is particularly useful when you're fighting, when you're trying to give a speech to fight against things like injustice or corruption. Right. That what it is that when you see when you see something that on an ethical level is clearly wrong, if you see something happening that's illegal, maybe if you know if you see something happening that's unfair, you know that you can get people angry. It's like, look, this is not fair. You know, this why does this have to ha have to happen? This is not right. You know, you can get a mad yep. and you can get people angry. You know, like if you're if you're dealing with something, you know, just random issue from history, like segregation or something. Right, mm -hmm. like you could get you yeah. could get people pissed off about you know how one group of people is treated so poorly where another is treated so well. It'd be like, no, this is not right. You know, you should be angry about this. Why are we tolerating this? 
you know, and, uh, and that, that anger is definitely a very important tool when you're on that topic, especially, you know, because, what, you know, if people are able to get angry, if people are able to be frustrated, you know, that they say, we need to do something about this injustice, then that is going to motivate them to take the type of action that's needed. Whereas if they feel complacent and they're kind of calm and mellow, you know, they might just walk away and then go back to their lives. Right. And so the only reason why, I mean, we understand, obviously, that those things can be used both ways. You yeah. can get people to hate through a racist way or in a genocidal way, and that can create destruction and chaos yeah. in society. So we just want to emphasize that, that what we're advocating for is right, right, rightful, what is it, righteous indignation. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's uh, why, that's why where you're, you're mad right, at yeah. evil. You can't stand evil. Well, that's but, why you correctly point out in the beginning that anger is a, a tricky one because yeah. it can be dangerous. That what it is, that, that anger inherently, while it can be good in some instances, like we just talked about, it's inherently an emotion that makes people willing to do things right, that right. they otherwise would not, you know, Oftentimes, anger and violence go hand in hand. And while you might have instances where it's justified, you also have you also have instances where anger can lead to unjustified violence, unjustified resistance. You know, and that and that people things can escalate very quickly when anger is involved. So it, right. you know, it, it is. And I do agree. You have to be very careful with anger. And that's why I think it's something that's more effective in certain types of speeches than others. That you can't use it all the time because if you do, it can be a dangerous now, thing. Now, I just want to say for those of you who who are out there who actually buy the argument of you know you need to have a high sense of morality you know in, in life in general I would say that there is like Martin Luther King that we talked about he didn't use hate you don't need to use hate if you're uncomfortable with it if you don't like it if you just think it's intrinsically bad you don't need to do it and you can still get the results we're just offering this out there as something you can put in your toolkit now the next thing that I think is better than hate but it's what Martin Luther King actually used, and that's hope. Yes. I think that hope That was actually is, the first thing that came is, to mind for me, is hope. Is one of the strongest emotions that you can get out because a hope, what that does is it allows people to dream. And when it allows people to dream, it allows them to see your vision, and it allows them to work towards it because they feel like it's possible, that it's, it's in the realm of reality if you just work towards it. And, you know, obviously what I think of is, like, the founders had this, they always spoke of a land of liberty, the land of opportunities, this free land, you know, this, this, and, and Martin Luther King, he had, a, he had a dream, and he gave people this hope of a society in the future that wouldn't be held down by, it, the, by the chains of the oppressions of the minorities and of, and of the, the chaos that was going on in society. And, you know, and, and, you know, and JFK, when he, had, when he gave people the hope that, that in that century, they were going to land a man on the moon. Um, and, you know, it just, when you invoke that hope, it's always for a good cause. It's all, it, to me, it just seems to be always uh, conducive to human achievement. It always yeah. leads humans to a certain point, and, 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 and it makes people feel good. When people feel hopeful, like if, if the employment rate is 20%, and then I made you feel hopeful that I can get it down to 10%, everyone's going to go home feeling good. Everyone's going to, you know, and it's just, it's, it's, it's one of those emotions that just makes people feel good. And if you can give someone hope, that's a very, that's a very beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, and I think another thing that's really important is that it, uh, it, this is something that's really important when it comes to actually having your goals realized. I think one of the things that makes hope so strong is that it's one of those few things that's able to unite the idealist and the pragmatist. Because when you really think about it, like the man on the moon is a perfect example. That there's always a friction between idealism and pragmatism because when you're an idealist, you're prone to pursuing things that are not realistic. Whereas if you're purely a pragmatist, you might not dream. The thing is that when you're speaking like this, it helps get the pragmatists motivated to do something. And the reason why I think the moon landing is a perfect example of, of this is, is because previous to that, 
Nobody had ever really thought about that, you know? But in the end of the day, it was the engineers and the scientists who made that rocket. It wasn't JFK. JFK could not have done that, especially not by himself. But what it is that when you had those two things combined, when you had that idealist inspiring people, JFK saying that we need to go to the moon, then he phrased it as a challenge. And that the pragmatists, knowing that it was in the best interest to advance the national prestige and stuff, accepted the challenge and then were able to put their talents and skills to use in ways that previously were thought not possible. And I think that's very important because when you can get the idealists and the pragmatists to work together, mm -hmm. where you sort of have that cycle going, where you're idealistic enough to keep people inspired, but yeah. pragmatic enough to make sure that things are actually happening, that is how you move a society forward. That's what moves people forward, ladies and gentlemen. And that's, you know, that's, that gives us all something to hope for. Now the last thing that I want to point out, because we got to wrap this up, <laughs> is any speech the great speeches that I have noticed, uh, you need to sort of talk about courage and bravery. You have to sort of, uh, like Winston Churchill did this, like in times of war, you know, the, 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 the people can feel sad or the people can feel disaffected or the people can feel disillusioned and they won't take the necessary action uh, in order to improve themselves and improve the lot of the country if they don't have the necessary bravery and they don't have the courage. And I think that that's something that is when you're asking people to do something, a call of action, you have to give them that sense of confidence that comes with courage and bravery. And I think that that's one of the most powerful things when you're telling somebody you can do it, you know, have no fear. You know, I think, you know, courage and bravery is a lot of times the absence of fear. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, when JFK said, let us, what is it, not uh, negotiate out of fear, but let us not negotiate to fear. No, he's, basically, yeah, yeah. he's basically talking about having the courage to stand up to the Soviet Union. And in today's day, what a lot of people might in a, get the national sense that uh, that China has become a global dominating superpower and that it becomes inevitable that they're going to have to submit to the will of the, of the political will, the diplomatic will of the Chinese at a certain point because they are just growing and growing and growing. And if that's the case, there will be no challenge. So what a, what a good speaker does is they ignite the population with yeah. bravery and courage so that they take it upon themselves to challenge that superpower yeah. in, in, in realms across these uh, you know, competitive, in well, these and competitive I, and, realms. And, and, I and think, to yeah. do that is, 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 is good for the nation's health, it's good for the person, it's, just all around, it's good for the speech, it's just something that is a, a, something that should be you know, cultivated. Well, and, and I think that the, the, the absence of fear is something that helps us be more logical. Because that, that quote that you just shared, um, we, should, we must not negotiate out of fear, however, we must never fear to negotiate. That is one of my favorite quotes. And the reason for that is because it shows that fear oftentimes is the enemy of us thinking clearly. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of times with these debates, both hawks and doves have a tendency to act out of fear. Because think about like with the China example that you have, that you know fear can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Some people, it seems like the the, the trend it that paralyzes. Yeah, people. the trend on, on, in some in sometimes fear paralyzes people, where that they'll be like, oh well, we can't do anything because we might start a trade war. We can't do anything because we might you know provoke China. You know, negotiating the fear. Oh my God, we're so afraid of China. Whereas on the other hand, sometimes hawks have their own version of fear that they're like, we need to attack because if we don't, this and that and this and that could happen. What it is, is that by having an absence of fear, it gives you enough courage mm -hmm. to stand up to the threat. You know, it's like, no, we're not appeasing China. 
You know, we're, we're going to hold them to the same international law standards in the other country. We're going to protect our interests, but at the same time, remain prudent enough not to become paranoid. That, yes, China overall is a great power competitor. I would argue that they're the most dangerous country to the United States right now. But every now and then, you might have a particular interest where there is some room for cooperation and that you can't fear to take advantage of those areas for cooperation. So I think that fear is something that paralyzes and harms people across the board, and that both dovish and hawkish ideology oftentimes manifest it. And I think regardless of where you fall in the ideological spectrum, oftentimes avoiding fear is very important. That a speech that can inspire people to do that, a speech that can inspire people to confront and put aside their fears. It's like, no, you know, we can stand up to China if you're trying right. to convince doves to do something. Or, no, there's some room for cooperation if you're trying to convince the hawks to not be as extreme. You know, that that absence of fear can get people to think clearly and produce solutions that actually work rather than out of paranoia doing something crazy like appeasement on one hand or starting World War Three on the other. And a lot of times where courage and bravery come into, in, into a central play is that where you're advocating for something that has long odds or that seems like it's not possible. I mean, you can just imagine the courage that it would take uh, an abolitionist to have, you know, in the early 18th century, uh, 19th century, that you're going against long, long odds. And uh, obviously, you know, like if you're in, if you're an immigrant right now and you're giving speak, you're speaking to your fellow immigrants, they could be persecuted or deported. It's important to instill them with speech so that they're not paralyzed towards towards the necessary action that's going to bring the, out the outcomes. Uh, and obviously, if you're going into battle, that general has to give his troops the courage so that they fight, so that they can take that hill, so that they can take that battle, so that they can take that region and win the war. So I think that, and I'm going to end that, uh, the emotion aspect of this right now, but Preston, I think we did a good job. Yeah, uh, I think I, I agree, order. but I think we've reached a good stopping point. It was a very good conversation. I feel like both of us brought up a lot of good points. And yeah, I enjoyed it, and I, I hope that anyone who listens to this got a lot out of it, you know, that we were able to discuss some of the aspects of communication that really, truly make a great speaker. Um, and as we continue with this, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, after we kind of get through all these principles, we're going to be thinking about, like, okay, in our opinion, we're going to construct a speaker. We're going to make a hypothetical right. person, and we're going to say, you know, what, what that's like. So anyway, that's about time, and we're heading out. All right, the last thing I want to say, ladies and gentlemen, is this is a production of the Wisdom Factory Literary Society, and this is what we do constantly every week. Every Wednesday we have meetings, and we come to discuss ideas, uh, just like how me and Preston did. Uh, we think that you know we're we're big on trying to find solutions to to the to the problems that we see in society, and we're big on looking through the literature and finding uh, you know the knowledge of the past and sort of coming up with ideas to solve problems in the in the status quo. Um, but what else could you say about the wisdom factor, real quick? What what are some of the things that we try to do here, Preston? Well, I think really the core objectives of the Wisdom Factory is just trying to advance the human condition through the discovery of truth and the development of knowledge. That basically what we want to do and what we are doing is we're trying to make sure that we have an openness about these ideas, that we're discussing them, that we're having debates and discussions to make sure that we are able to, to develop things and you know, develop ideas that make you know, humankind, you know, uh, as a whole, make our country, our communities a better place. You know, that we want to strive forward um, and we want to make sure that we're, we're tackling some of these issues and challenges in ways that are productive, that produce good solutions, that lead to the discovery of truth, and, and that leave everybody better off than they were before. Exactly, and I like the way you said that, leave everybody off the way that they were before. And also, one of the big things that we do is that, and then the next component is self-development. 
So we're, you know, we're, hopefully those listening to us can incorporate some of the things that we talked about and build themselves up and become a better speaker. And, and the fact, if anybody here listening to this became a better speaker, then that's actually, you know, one of the main things that we're about. So with that, I just want to say thank you for listening. And if you have, if you want any more information, please don't hesitate to contact uh, somebody in the Wisdom Factor Literary Society. Thank you for your time. Thank you.